episode 182 of the Spokesman Cycling Industry Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Monday, 26th of February, 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of bikebiz.com and this show has been engineered today on a Monday at the back end of February, but I recorded the conversation yesterday, Sunday the 25th of February. I managed to grab Chris Garrison, formerly of Trek, and Recreation Law's Jim Moss. We talked about car tech that tries, but sometimes fails, to keep cyclists safe, the boycott of a bunch of bike brands because their parent company makes ammo, AR-15s, and is a vocal supporter of the National Rifle Association, and whether it's a good idea for bike shops to go on strike over bikes and bits bought on the internet. Now, I'm not giving too much away by saying none of us were fans of the NRA, and that bike shops withdrawing their labour over Canyon and their ilk would be um, shooting themselves in the foot. Then, thanks to Chris, we riffed on how the cycle industry doesn't do enough to attract women, members of the LGBT community and black and Asian customers. Please note that this is, and has always been, a tuna-friendly podcast. Uh, welcome to episode 182 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. And uh, you are listening uh, to us in the UK, or I'm in the UK, and Chris Garrison, who's joining us, is in the UK. And we are chilly, aren't we, Chris? We are a bit um, unseasonably cold. Yeah, it's not spring. It's meant to be spring, and we are getting a huge dump of snow. Now, who isn't getting a huge dump of snow is uh, Jim across there in Colorado. So, Jim, you were telling us before we were recording that, for whatever reason, and we, we, we can't fathom what the reason could be, uh, the U.S. is getting some weird weather. Uh, weird. Let's see here. Weird would be the understatement. I am. It's February 25th here, whatever the date is. I'm mm-hmm. looking out my window and I see a few patches of snow, and only where it's in the shade. Um, and and you know, I I just came out of the mountains yesterday. I was up for a Boy Scout event up at 9,000 foot, and you know we had a hard time uh, finding snow for the kids to do their events in. Uh, I mean, if only scientists could actually tell us what's going on here. It's just, they're really remiss. Yes. Not I mean, just come on. Yeah, I mean, as Chris said, you know, 96% are in agreement. Yeah. It's just that last 4% that's holding us up. Yes, yeah, so we're in a, a binary <laughs> media. So it, it's, it's he says, and you've got to have the opposite opinion, even though it's only a minority opinion. Okay. I feel like that... that- that percentage of uh, climate change deniers are probably in the same category of people who think the Earth is flat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's not. That it's might not, explain Jim. my my cycling speeds. <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm sorry, but it's not. 
Well, let's get into the cycling. Let's get away from the contentious 94% of scientists agree and get into the 100% of our listeners agree that cycling is fantastic. Uh, so, I, God, I'm hoping anyway. Um, so let's get into, into the kind of the racing part of the show. So, so this is not, it's sort of racing, yes, but I've, I've, I've paired this up with a, uh, a linked subject. So Cav fell off his bike, injured himself in the Tour of Abu Dhabi. I think, was it the first stage? It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't deep into the stage, but it was like the first stage. And yeah. uh, he, he fell and injured his shoulder and had to pull out. Uh, so we're not going to talk about the race itself, I don't think. But he, he fell because, well, just uh, Jim, do you know why he fell? Are you aware of I I read the articles, Go on, and then. in you, all you, honesty, it was, it was amazing, interesting, partially scary and and yet at the same time if you look at it from the other perspective it may save a lot of cyclists lives mm. so so describe describe i mean it was a mercedes so describe what mercedes technology uh made cav fall to the they floor. have uh, like many car manufacturers nowadays um automatic sensors that when they spot something in front of them they break or slow down or stop and so during the, the ride-out before the race started, when all the cyclists are in among the team cars or whatever, uh, one car slowed down because it sent cyclers too close, and everybody who was behind a car started to crash, and Cavendish crashed the hardest. Um, so they're going to have know, to turn nobody... tech off, aren't they? they? They can't have this when you've got a whole bunch of cyclists. I mean, it is kind of funny, this story. But think it's not, about that, not funny well, for him, but it's kind of funny. Would it would it have saved those two guys during uh, the race in Europe a couple of years ago? They got mm. knocked out. I mean, it, it it senses on almost all four sides in some cases. Most of them are just front and back. But you're coming up in front of a cyclist and you're not paying attention, and it slows you down, and you don't hit him from the rear end. Mm. You know, so maybe for the racist they they might, but it, at the same time, it might also save somebody's life. It does, of course, draw the. The conclusion that if you can turn this tech off, an awful lot of motorists will turn this tech off. Turn it off. Do you think, right. Chris? Do you think that might happen? People will just nah, cycle it. Who cares? Turn it off. Yeah, I, I think there's an implication there that if it's if it's turned off because of something that could potentially happen in a bike race, and obviously if this incident had hadn't happened in the bike race, we wouldn't even be talking about this. Mm. The implications of doing that. Um, on a on a more regular driving conditions level are um, are much worse, and I'm completely with Jim on this. There is the flip side of this coin is that yes, it's unfortunate that that the system worked so well that the conditions in which it worked well were unfortunately during during a race. But as we know, cycling fatalities happen everywhere, and they're not going away anytime soon because drivers are not necessarily feeling any greater sense of responsibility than they were this time a year ago or this time five years ago. So I think it's one of those instances where the circumstances under which this happened are not something that you could replicate under normal road circumstances. And for that reason, I don't think that we want to be encouraging something that is a safety device that is meant to uh, to impact driving conditions under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, a very similar uh, subject is, I'm, I'm going to bookend here, and that is at the Geneva Motor Show uh, coming up in March, there's going to be at least two companies, possibly more, are going to introduce anti-doring 
technology. So Audi and Hyundai of, uh, of Korea, I believe, uh, are introducing, they are very much high-end uh, motors. So this often happens, it's, it's, it's a trickle-down thing, you know, they, they start it at the high-end models and then it comes down into the, hopefully all cars will have, you know, a, a, a cyclist recognition technology. But uh, these are the two brands that are, in about uh, two weeks' time are going to release this tech which will prevent motorists and passengers from opening their doors when there's a cyclist or a car or anybody that's any anything a pedestrian motorist a cyclist spotted behind an Audi or a Hyundai the door will lock and you won't be able to to get it out now on twitter when i posted this story uh, somebody very very accurately said well that's going to be great fun and it's it's almost the autonomous car uh, thing where you can stand in front of an autonomous car and make sure it never goes anywhere well in future you're going to be able to to hover behind an Audi driver and make sure that Audi driver never gets out of his car or her car so again that brings forward the the, the idea that great that this technology might be or maybe you think it isn't but it also is the kind of technology that you can imagine will be turned off so Chris what, what do you think about cyclist detection technology in general uh, you know I've been as you've been talking I've been thinking about this and I'm in two minds about it on one hand I think any technology that makes vulnerable road users safer from people who are driving essentially a, a, a box-shaped weapon is a good idea the downside of it for me and the other side of of the the debate in my head is the idea that we're we're allowing people to have a get out of jail free card and absolving them of the responsibility of paying closer attention. So while I I really want this to be something that is more widely adopted by the automobile industry, I don't think that it should exist in a vacuum and in the absence of better driver training that incorporates something like the Dutch Reach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if anybody isn't familiar with the Dutch Reach, it's um, it's a technique that essentially involves um, if you need to exit the vehicle, then you, depending on which side of the car you drive, um, in the in the U.S., for example, you would you would use uh, your right arm, and in the U.K., you would use your left arm. The idea is that when you take your seatbelt off, you do so with with your the side that you unbuckle the seatbelt, and you hold onto it so that you have to draw your arm across your body and behind you. And in the process of doing so, you, you sort of have to force your body to turn and look out the window and behind you. And so there's lots of videos that, that portray this a lot better than I'm explaining it. But the idea is that it's a way to check to see if there is anybody coming up alongside you from behind that might be injured if you open your door into that lane. Mm. And I think that this is this is as vital a component of driver education as any piece of technology that could be built into a vehicle that is designed to protect people. Very much like checking your mirrors and using your turn signals before you change lanes. I think that this is the sort of thing that driving instruction should should be should include as a mandatory part of the training. So that's my concern about it. I think it's a good idea, but at the same time, I don't think that it should exist in isolation. And you know, and I, I agree with you, Chris. I think it's a wonderful idea, but it's never going to work here in the United States. I mean, it's the school districts used to teach driver training. I got my required driver training from my high school. You know, well, nobody teaches driver's training through the 
public education system anymore. You go take private lessons. And the private lessons are designed to get all the money they can out of you and get you passed as quickly as possible. And they're not going to take another three seconds whatsoever. And so we would have to mandate by law a change in that. And that's never going to happen. It's just people, you know, when a kid turns 16 or 17, the parents want him to drive just so they don't have to take him everywhere that a 16-year-old kid goes. You know, they finally get, I have a client who has, I think, five or six grandkids, and his that's all he does from noon until 8 or 10 o'clock at night every day is move grandkids from one place to the other. Mm. And it's just not going to happen. We're not going to get more sensible people behind the wheels. So, Jim, that means you would therefore be in favor of tech because that, that takes away the responsibility from these fallible humans and, and puts it onto automotive companies and onto the tech. And I think that my best chance of surviving is up to tech. <laughs> I, I see your point. I, you know, mm. especially, especially as a litigator, I mean, you can imagine... You can imagine somebody being in a situation where they have this tech built into their car. They don't either they don't pay attention to it or it does actually malfunction and they wind mm. up dooring somebody who gets seriously injured. The person who gets injured files a lawsuit against the person who then says, Oh, it wasn't my fault because the technology <laughs> in my car didn't work. Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and and thinking at the same time, this technology could create create another disaster and a professional bike race. You know, the the the, um, the mechanic couldn't get out to change tires, you know, because of the bicycles going past. You know, he'd be stuck there. You know, you could have the leader, um, and by the time the car slows down or catches up, the peloton's caught up, and all of a sudden, a hundred and some racers have to go by before the mechanic can get out of the car. Or they're opening the sunroof and he's climbing out that way, you know? I think we can safely assume that the pro peloton is now going to be turning off all this tech. I think Cav going but, down surely will make sure that that will not happen again. In but the if Pro they learn, but 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 here's the issue: the issue is not whether or not the Pro, Tele, Pro Peloton with 120, 180 riders mm. and all the other races with a total of say 10,000 people in the world should be able to turn off that tech, so the millions and millions of the rest of us might suffer. Because if they know how to turn it off somebody's going to figure it out and turn it off for everybody else who wants it. I, I mean, the first thing people do out here is they, they go get uh, a muffler system mm. that makes, you know, smoking you out. You know, you can't breathe when a diesel truck passes you. We finally outlawed that here in Colorado. But, you know, I mean, they bought a truck and then they would drive past cyclists and all of a sudden you're in a smog that you can't even see through, let alone breathe. Mm. Uh, it's not going to work. And if the pro peloton turns it off we all lose what so, they need to do is just change the peloton can change cycling's changed it changes every week so just just on, on a, a small point then because you're you're assuming that it might be quite difficult to turn this tech off and, and i'm I assuming hope. i'm assuming the other way around I'm, I'm assuming yeah i bet you can turn this off quite easily so this is a purely on a, a, a litigation point do you think if a motorist turns this off then doors a cyclist there will then be some sort of uh, it's your fault. And if they get sued and they say, well, actually, you turned that off, so you're really much more culpable than you otherwise would have been in the future. Oh, that's going to make my head hurt. 
Well, I mean, that, oh. of course, that, that, well, that, that, then they are absolutely negligent, aren't they? And, and perhaps even criminally neg negligent at that point. I suppose it would depend but, on what legislation dictates that this, this technology needs to exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if there is legislation that says it needs to exist, then, there, then we have negligence and maybe criminal negligence. However, there's no, neg there's no legislation for any of this so far. Mm. It's just a sales point that the car companies are creating. Hey, buy our car and you won't kill a cyclist. Um, it, and, and so consequently, I don't know the liability. I mean, so, so one of the big things that cars always argue is the cyclist was not wearing a helmet. Mm. His injuries are 10 times greater because he wasn't wearing a helmet because the helmet would have saved his life. And we have these, and, and in each state, it's always different on whether or not the helmet's going to be able to be used against the cyclist as a way to stop his lawsuit or reduce his damages. And in most states, it, you can't bring it up. Uh, or at least you can't stop the lawsuit. The law states you decrease the damages. Mm. Uh, and yet, you know, we know what the value of a helmet really is. Um, and it probably wouldn't have changed the damages, you know, the head injury one iota, um, other than scrapes. Jim, because um, you've mentioned yeah. helmets, I I'm uh -oh. going to do a cheap and easy and such a smooth segue into the next topic, which is regarding the, the potential boycott of a helmet brand, a water bladder drinking system brand, a child seat brand, and a whole bunch of other outdoor and bicycle brands, uh, which are all linked by the fact that they are owned by a corporation called Vista Outdoor, which probably most people hadn't heard of before. Bike Biz has done a few stories on it, but I wasn't aware of uh, the other things they sold at, at all and, and until it was uh, pointed out on social media. Uh, Vista Outdoor are a, a big ammunition manufacturer and gun supplier, not just guns, but pretty, from certainly UK point of view, like pretty awful guns, the kind of guns that have been used in, in mass shootings in the U.S. So um, a boycott yeah, call has come through. Car here in the US. So a boycott call has, has, has gone viral on social media. So on Bike Biz, it's, had, it's just under 40,000 Facebook shares, that one story, which is just phenomenal. It's absolutely caught people's attention because of the whole hashtag boycott NRA um, thing happening. So uh, just, just to put one more bit in before I, I get your point of view is it's not just that uh, Vista Outdoor makes ammunition or makes guns. It's that they're quite, it appears, they're quite uh, vociferous supporters of the National Rifle Association. So that makes them uh, very suspect in the eyes of an awful lot of uh, uh, advocates uh, in certainly in the world of bicycles and of course in, in, in the wider world. So Jim, would you make your helmet, child seat, whatever choice, uh, would you make it by looking at whether the company, the parent company uh, supports the NRA? Yep. That's exempt? I, and, yeah, and, and here's, here's a couple reasons why. One, <laughs> You know, I grew up just, I mean, I grew up through the 60s, 
and in the 60s boycott was a big thing we did mm. and when it came out that most sea turtles were being killed by tuna fishermen because in their big nets they would capture the tuna and the turtles i didn't eat tuna fish for 20 years mm. it it didn't bother me a bit you know because it was my way of saying um you know, I think sea turtles are important, and until you guys change, I'm not going to give you money. Um, and so boycotting is something I understand. So those poor um, tuna fishermen, who it's no fault of, of their own, they've got to make a living, you were kind of putting them out of business. So same analogy, the poor people, many of whom we know at, uh, at Giro, uh, at Camelback, I, I certainly know people at these companies and uh, who are personal friends. So... If that stance, which you're going to take from now on, which is similar to the tuna stance, you're putting my friends out of work. Are you happy with that? No. And they're my friends also. I have friends at all those companies. At the same time, I'm not going to look at the parent of a kid that was killed in a school shooting and say, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't agree with you. Um. I, you know, I, and, you know, I, I agree in guns without rifles, without hunting, we would have, uh, we would have nothing but a garbage system to collect deer carcasses in Denver, Colorado, and my old hometown of Ohio, there would be deer dying everywhere. They overpopulate so fast and they would die of starvation. Uh, rabbits would be in charge of the world, you know, um, <laughs> And, and so, yeah, there's a real place for guns, but at the same time, and, and, and I'm a member of the Boy Scouts of America, which is a big um, supportee of the NRA, um, and we, I am in charge of uh, weekends where we teach kids to shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I justify that, though, because they're getting a weekend of learning the proper way to handle a gun and how dangerous it is, and that it's not anything other than a weapon, and that... It can be a sport, but it's not for protection or anything else. So, it's, so you know, let, let's, let's bring Chris in here. Chris, Until I, I guns are gone, you've got to deal with it. Chris, I, I, I'm recording this uh, on a variety of Apple products. I'm not too sure what ecosystem that you uh, align yourself to, whether you are, are on Apple person or not. But if you start, if, if, if the logical thing is to... Uh, to start boycotting brands that do nefarious things, well, we're going to have to start boycotting Apple because there's various nefarious things that have been alleged over the years about their, their, their factories that produce the products that we, we know and love. So. Yeah, I like that. I like that sort of um, logical fallacy, that whataboutism. Mm. Um, and... Oh, yes. am I jumping in when you're done? It's a boycott, Chris. Okay, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna instead of uh, responding directly to your to your your question, which is the whataboutism one, I, I'd like to go back to the Vista one if I can for just a second, because hmm. in the short time that I had to prep for the show, I did some quick research on Vista Outdoor. Um, so. The thing about Vista is that they have something like f- over 50 brands. Of those brands that they have, 24 of them are shooting sport brands. 
25 if you count Bushnell, because Bushnell makes optics for guns. Mm. They also make binoculars, but um, the, the Vista owns Bushnell, and, and a lot of what they produce is, is optics for rifles and things of that nature. Um, 40% of their products are ammunition-based products. So they're making 40% off of their, of their income just off the back of selling ammunition. Um, that's not including one of their brands, which is called Savage Arms, which actually produces AR-15 style rifles. Mm. So we're talking about a company here that makes, and last, I think their earnings, I couldn't actually find a, a financial report that split where their earnings comes from. All I could find was something that said what their total earnings were um, for 2015, which which reported earnings of $79.5 million. Um, so they're in the toilet about, right now. If you look at their current stats, they're, they're in the toilet because of Trump, in, 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 in bizarrely. Yeah, because they stockpile well, a bunch well, of uh, yeah. stuff ahead of the election, uh, yeah. evidently. So the thing about um, the brands that they have that are non-shooting brands Obviously, we all know people that work at those brands. We've we've had their products before. We've used them before, and and I think a boycott of those brands, a financial boycott of those brands, is probably it, it's unlikely to impact the bottom line of Vista as a whole. Mm. Um, you you could argue that if you go ahead and buy those brands, then you might not be economically complicit, but you might be morally complicit in uh, in their in their overall bottom line. Um, the worst case scenario that one could hope for of a boycott of these brands is that they become uh, so toxic in the overall portfolio of brands that they have that Vista decides to offload them. But you can't offload something like that within a portfolio without it having pretty significant impact on um, the structure of the organization. So clearly there would probably be downsizing, there would be selling off of assets, the, the company might not exist if it can't buy, find a buyer. Uh, elsewhere, so that's what I think the economic implications of doing a boycott would be if if people want to participate in it. Um, it's it's a little bit of a sticky wicket because I understand people not wanting to support Vista's overarching organizational culture, which is clearly terrible um, because they do support the NRA so heavily, and the NRA is just the devil as far as I'm concerned. Um, so how do you then express your displeasure at the fact that this company happens to own other brands of the products that you love? And I think that is the, the boycott is maybe not necessarily the answer. I think the thing the boycott will make people feel better, but it won't necessarily accomplish a means to an end. Um, and really, I think this is a, this is a case where the way that you hurt something like Vista and their shooting brands is not to go after them as a company, but to go after the institution that they support. Mm -hmm. Which does appear to be it's my turn yet. Well, yeah, go for it, Jim. Go for it. I won't buy an Apple product because I've been boycotting them since the early nineties, <laughs> and I'm serious. Now, why, why did okay? you boycott them from the? And early the 90s? reason is this: mm. Apple was the first U.S. company caught with a browser that would restrict where you could go. And it wasn't based on sites that would download malware. It wasn't site based on anything else. It was based on someone, or maybe Apple's, I don't know, opinion about abortion. 
And in their early browsers, you could not go to certain abortion sites. And in the last version of Siri, they came out with a new phone. If you asked Siri if where you could buy the RU486 pill, and you could be standing next to a pharmacy that would say that had it for sale, it would say there are none near you. But Jim, aren't there and loads of tech whether or companies? not you're for or against abortion isn't the issue. The issue is. Do we have the right to be free in how we do our research online? And therefore, I boycott because Apple says they want to control where I want to go. But, Jim, you'd have to boycott an awful lot of tech companies. Because, I do. Okay. Because <laughs> an awful lot of tech companies, say, in China, uh, restrict the Internet, restrict searches, do all sorts of weird and wonderful things to get access to the, to the wonderful and huge Chinese market. So where do you draw the line? You'd have to, you'd have to boycott, you'd have to go off grid, Jim, if you really, really wanted to carry this through. It, you're right, and it's miserable some days. <laughs> but I think that someplace, sometime, I have to draw a line in the sand. And my line is not perfect. I'm the first to admit that. And I'm, my line isn't even close to being perfect. It looks more like a, a three-year-old's crayon drawing rather than a straight line. But I try. And I think that's more important. I fail more than I succeed, but it doesn't stop me from trying. Chris, I want to make sure that morally and ethically I can do everything I can to live up to the way I want to be remembered. Chris, it, it's almost easy to boycott Giro because there are a gazillion other helmet and shoe brands. So is it just something that, well, yeah, but I can boycott Jerry. Probably the people who are saying this probably may not have ever bought them. Anyway, there's just a gazillion of brands. It's easy, relatively easy to boycott brands in a, in a, a marketplace where there's a multitude of brands. Whereas if we're going to go on the, the looking at the tech side, well, there is just Apple, really, on, on that kind of beer moth size. And it's, it's relatively tough. Certainly, from my point of view, I find it incredibly tough to, to boycott Apple because I've, I've built my life around their products. Whereas I probably could uh, boycott, if I wanted to, and if I, I felt that way, boycott a brand where there's multitude of choices. Yeah, uh, you're, you're, I think you're right. It, it's easy to boycott Giro helmets because there's any one of a number of other helmet manufacturers that will make people feel better about the choice to mm. not buy a Giro helmet in this case. But I think it, it, what the underlies this is the is the difference between something like a grassroots boycott and something that is more of a, of a systemic one that actually has a bit more uh, structure to it and perhaps on a larger scale. And I also think that, that there's a difference between trying to economically damage a brand and trying to damage the brand's reputation. I don't really think that in this particular case, this, the success of this is going to be because a bunch of people stop buying Camelbacks. I think mm. the success of this will be if people start shaming Vista Outdoor, the parent company, because of their support of the NRA. And if people make a personal choice to boycott some of their cycling-related brands, again, I think and then that's somebody's choice, and I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't try to suggest that they're doing the wrong thing. But I also... Very, very much like the, the technology discussion we were having earlier, I don't think that simply saying I'm not going to buy their products anymore is something that should be the only way that people express their distaste over what the parent company is doing. The parent company is ultimately the problem here. 
they are the ones that are taking the money from their entire portfolio of brands and using it to support an organization who actively wants to defeat any degree of legislation that will yeah. prevent the next school shooting from happening. And we shouldn't make any mistake about it. The next school shooting is inevitable in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that's where Vista, I think, is what people really need to be doing is is deciding, okay, I'm going to not buy this product because I don't want to contribute to their bottom line. Fine. But make some noise about them as a parent company. And why you, you boycotted them, because it's the yeah. array that you boycotted before. So you've worked for a bike company, so and, and you probably know some people in these particular uh, companies. How do you think they're feeling right now? Do you think they're, they're themselves are feeling a bit conflicted and thinking, maybe I shouldn't even work for these brands? I have absolutely no doubt that people are thinking that. Yep. I mean, if you look at how it, the half the people that work in, in the outdoor industry um, are, are people that have probably come to it like me. I, you know, I was on Wall Street and really loved riding my bike and decided I, I'd had enough of Wall Street. And so I wanted to go and work in the industry that that really was the foundation of my personal recreation habits. Mm-hmm. And there are countless numbers of people that work in the outdoor industry that have that same feeling. And the thing about us as a as a demographic, I think, is that we we share. I think there are clearly, you know, this is a bell curve thing. You're going to have a, a large number of people who sit in the middle of the bell curve that all operate on the same value systems, and those value systems are progressive. They're probably left of center. Um, they support things like common sense gun laws, and they won't enjoy the fact that, you know, if they've worked there long enough, they won't enjoy the fact that Vista came in and bought their company out from the people that owned it before in the first place. And mm-hmm. so their moral decision about what to do probably started a long time before this. And if anything, this has just exacerbated it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this is clearly, clearly a highly contentious issue, especially as this show, I mean, there's, the, there's a, the, an honorary Brit, which is Chris, and there's a real Brit, which is, is me. Uh, but however, this is actually an American show. So it's, it's, it was originally David's show. And if I look at the stats, it's a majority American. It's like 70% uh, uh, listenership is, is American. So given that's the case, there's going to be an awful lot of listeners who are going to be absolutely dead Great. set against what uh, has just been said and, 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 and will totally disagree. Do you think those kind of people will have any sway? Because in America, it is so obviously divided. And this subject, it, 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 this, this subject is not divisive in the UK. This is everybody, you know, virtually everybody. I can't think of anybody who would, would be thinking... Uh, that that uh, we shouldn't have restrictive gun laws. We just that just wouldn't even come into anybody anybody's uh, uh, field of view in in the UK. But in the US, it's clearly a much much more contentious issue. So, do you think there's going to be an awful lot of kickback from this from people who actually support the NRA? And and that's actually a question to to, to both of you. You, you. you go, Chris, you go first, but then absolutely, you you go and, and answer the same question there, Jim, afterwards. I mean, I, find, I, I have a hard time believing that, that people who are card-carrying members of the NRA are going to suddenly decide to take up bike riding to support brands <laughs> that Vista owns. <laughs> as much as I might like to think that that is a way to grow the sport, I, I, can't, I can't reasonably see that being the case at all. 
I'm, and I don't, I don't think that they're going to be, um, you know, if, if anything, they'll just go back, go out and, and, and buy more guns and ammunition from, from Vista brands. And, and as we know from the, from the, the dismal level of legislation that exists in the U S for anything gun related, they won't have any difficulty doing so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't, but again, I don't think that, um, I don't necessarily think that they exist in large enough numbers and and we already know that that Vista has been hemorrhaging a bit of, of earnings since the election anyway. Um, I, I don't really see that being the sort of thing that is going to boost Vista's sales. And, and like I said, I, I, I'm I'm happy that their earnings are are in the tank, and I wish they would continue to be that way. Because you know what doesn't happen in the UK is nobody here has any discussions about whether or not we should arm teachers, <laughs> and no no students in schools here have to go through active shooter drills. Mm. And you know what? It's great. Mm. So, Jim, did you have a a strong view on the strong views of uh, some of your uh, some of your fellow countrymen? No, I I don't have an opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. Uh, you know, it, first of all, the the people who work for those companies that are now being boycotted did not go to work for Vista Outdoors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They went to work for Camelback or Giro or mm-hmm. whoever. And they got acquired. Two years ago, three years ago. It's like uh, only yeah. relatively recent. So, yeah. And good so, job. and they had great jobs and they're great people and they're doing a good job. And, and I, I'm not throwing away my Camelback products. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a lot of them and I love them. Um, however, the fact still remains that, and, and, and I think Chris is exactly right. I, I know we have some people who are listeners who are probably lifetime members of the NRA. Um, and they may not listen to us again because of some of the opinions expressed here. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that's a big number. Um, when you see the lifetime member of the NRA stickers on the back of a vehicle, um, and you see one in Denver, Colorado, every time you go for a drive and a ride, um, they're usually in big trucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, there's nothing there that they don't have a cycling license plate on the vehicles. Um, it's a, a different world. And it's it's akin to a religion. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and, and as far as Trump's not helping, it's not that, that a Republican president helps. It's that a Democratic president sends them out in mad paranoia and they buy everything they can because they know they're going to take away their guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I have an opinion, but I think the most important thing is, is that we have to solve the problem. And if somebody's saying, I'm not going to buy your helmet and getting that known to the company because you support the NRA, then it may have an effect in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or it may not. Because the, the people who are fighting it are just as stubborn the other way. You know, so. I mean, no, I think they're worse, Jim. I mean, it I runs think the gamut. You and gotta, I have, well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta call it when. I mean, you, I think they're worse. I mean, and and you're right that that there is another side to the argument. But I gotta, you know, this is one of those things where because, as Carlton suggested, it is such an emotive topic. The thing about emotive topics is that when people feel that something that they're really emotional about is under threat, in this case, that the government might come and take away their guns, then reason and logic tend to fly out the the window. Mm. And 
this isn't to suggest that there aren't, you know, everybody knows this is like a not all men thing, right? People who who led, who advocate for common, common sense gun legislation don't need to be told that there are people in the world that exist in the U.S. who are responsible gun owners. We know that. Yeah. That's that's not who we're suggesting needs to stop having access to purchasing firearms. We don't need to be told that there are people who who lock their guns away and who keep them really safe and who do the training that's required to operate them. We know that. That's not what the, what the gun control debate is about. The gun control debate is about whether or not you think it's okay <laughs> that somebody doesn't have to go through extensive mental health checks to be able to buy a gun, whether or not you think it's okay to be able to bypass the gun control checks that you'd go through if you went into a, a gun store by going to a gun show. And if you think that it's okay, that kids continue to die. So really, that's the argument you have to decide which side you want to be on. And it does well, seem to be changing at the moment. There is a different side. And I can tell you this side real quick. I, my parents still live in southeastern Ohio, and I was back there seven years ago. And dad loves to go to swap meets. And so Saturday morning, we loaded up. We all went to the swap meet. And I was walking by a table that had a lot of guns on it. And they were selling them. And a guy rides up in the ATV and he says, I just heard on the internet that Hillary and Obama are getting together with the United Nations to take our guns away. And I stopped because I was try- going to explain to them the fact that legally that could never happen. It was just impossible to happen legally. Mm. And my nephew, who is a a phenomenally intelligent person and a good friend and somebody I've taken as many places as I could all over the world, put both hands on my back and kept shoving, (laughs) you know, and because he knew I was going to get myself shot or something, you know, and I had no argument with their guns. They were all hunting rifles. And in that part of the world, people live by what they shoot. It was the issue that they had no concept of what the legal realities were of what they were saying. They just did not understand the law. It's just so intellectually lazy. It was, they're not even intellectually on the scale. For for the benefit of of listeners uh, who are not from the U.S. and for the benefit of me, what's a swap meet? Uh, A carpet sale. Okay, okay, cool. Okay, gotcha. What's a carpet sale? (laughs) A swap meet. Oh, good. Okay. I kind of thought it might be something like that, but just, you know, it might be some weird American gun thing. I don't know. <laughs> no, flea market, uh, yard sale, swap meet. So it's all essentially the same as a car boot sale. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, now this is an emotive uh, subject, as, as Chris said there. However, we have got um, an amazing show title out of it from early on, and that was, uh, I'm going to say this is, is it's definitely got to be the... The one I can't be beat in the rest of the show, I'm sure it can't be. And that is from Jim, and, and I'll quote you back at you, Jim. Uh, Rabbits will be in charge of the world. So there you go. That's that's what's all going to put the, the hey, wobbles up. It's my first title. <laughs> I've never gotten a title before. Do you know Rabbits will be in charge of the world? I think it would be a quite a nice world, actually. As long as it's those nice little fluffy ones, not the like really horrible Watership Down ones. They were pretty evil, Rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> well, being a UK thing only. <laughs> okay, we are going to uh, cut to an ad break at that point, and uh, I want to all imagine uh, rabbits taking over the world, and let's take it away, David. Well, thank you, Carlton, and hello, everybody. Sorry to break in, but I just wanted to take a few moments to remind you of our show sponsor, and that is Jensen USA at Jensen USA. 
dot com slash the spokesman. Now, Jensen USA is where you can get everything that you're looking for for your cycling lifestyle, whether it's a complete bike, a component, some apparel, shoes, tools, something for nutrition. You will be able to find it all at Jensen USA. And you will be able to find a huge selection of products at unbelievable prices with unparalleled customer service because that's what Jensen USA is all about. Jensen USA was founded by cyclists for cyclists. And when you call them and you have a question, you talk to one of their gear advisors, you will be speaking with a cyclist, which means you know that you'll be getting the right product for exactly the application you are looking to fill. Go ahead and check them out. That's Jensen USA, J-E-N-S-O-N-U-S-A.com slash The Spokesman. We are extremely appreciative of Jensen USA for their longtime support of The Spokesman. And we are also appreciative of you for your support of Jensen USA. If you haven't checked them out before, go do it right now. That's JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. Thanks so much for their support, for your support, and thanks for allowing me to break into the show. Now, back to the Carlton and The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. <laughs> Dolphins, of course. Dolphins should take over the world. That'd be much nicer. Oh, Yeah. And we are back, well, and I'm Carlton Reed of uh, BikeBiz.com, and the person interrupting there, how rude, uh, was Jim Moss of Recreation Law, and also on the show uh, today we have Chris Garrison, and uh, we have been talking about some pretty emotive stuff, and I would kind of like to keep it on the viral theme, so the, the previous subject was, was pretty much viral, it's going viral in, on all sorts of um, hashtag boycott NRA stuff uh, across the world. Uh, and I'm going to keep it viral. And this is another story that was on Bike Biz that, that, that went viral for us. And that was a bike shop owner uh, who, in effect, said, use us or lose us. And it was quite a long article. But right at the end there, I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, fascinating information uh, points in there. But there was one point, which I think is what made this particular piece go viral. And uh, this particular bike shop owner said, we should get together and we should have a week where we go on strike. We, we withdraw, in effect, our labor. Uh, if anybody brings in or comes out on a shop ride or does anything with an internet-bought bicycle. So we just don't, bike shops shouldn't touch anything to do with an internet-bought product for a week. So uh, how workable do you think this is, Chris, as a, as a theory? Chris, have we lost Chris? I still show her. Y you know what? Uh, oh, you're there, he so. did, but it's only because I had the mute button on. Um, <laughs> I thought you were thinking really, really hard. So those rabbits had put you off. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the, you, you, you sent me down a... <laughs> you sent me down a rabbit hole when you mentioned dolphins. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm here all the week. Okay. Uh, anyhow... <laughs> I'll have to leave that so, in the tape now, of course, the recording, the, the dolphin bit. Okay, I'll leave that back in. Um, so the, the question about whether or not there is some merit in the idea of, uh, of rejecting or refusing to do any sort of work on, on internet-purchased bikes. Um, 
I, I, th- I think this is a kind of one, again, this is, as you suggested, an emotive topic. And I feel like there's a better way to do this, which would be to, some, to do some research and do, do some data acquisition first. And that would be that, you know, maybe the way that you, you figure this out is, is to decide, all right, we're going to start tracking how many bikes come in here mm. that were either purchased by us or purchased on the internet. How many people come in here to ask us to hang parts on the bike that were purchased over the internet. There's an absence of data um, in in this particular thing. I mean, we have data that says that we know that more and more people are making purchases for bike products online. We know that the number of bike stores is rapidly on the decline. There are lots of really great suggestions that people have made about whether or not, um, you know, how to keep bike stores open in the face of this increased internet demand and purchasing power. But, I, I'm not sure that the way to solve this problem or to highlight it in the first go is to decide that you're going to take some revenue away from yourself in order to prove a point. Mm. Because the thing is, is that unless you have unless you have some sort of of unity among people in your area, if somebody walked into a to your store and said, "Can you service my bike or can you hang this group set on there?" and you said, "We're not, we're refusing to work on your bike because you didn't purchase that from us." What's that consumer going to do? They're not going to think about the choice they made. They're just going to find the next closest bike store who isn't participating in in whatever your your grassroots campaign is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a, 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 some people on on a, a trade forum said to me was when they when they came up with this idea, they said, "Well, you know what bike shops are going to do." They'll be the ones advertising the fact that we'll we'll uh, fix anything. And the week before this promotion happens, they would just uh, uh, split ranks and and just say we'll fix anything that week, yep. because it's like herding yeah. cats. Bike shops are all independent bike shops. That's that's the, the clue is in the name. They are independent bike shops. They don't all pull together, and that's partly their uh, their their downfall, but also the the beauty of them. They are all just doing their own thing, their own sometimes fantastic thing and, and their independence is what sometimes makes them so fantastic so jim i, I think i semi-interrupted you there you, you were going to come in well I, I i mean i think it's a great idea but it'll never work because as you just said they're they're independent but hmm. the, and as far as the st- statistics go the, the individual bike shop owners know the stats they can tell you how many they work on in a week um, every time I walk into a bike shop, I'll ask something like that, and they'll tell you the number, three, seven, whatever. They know. Just no one's collecting that information. What I suggest they all do is they raise their prices, and they give a discount to people who bought their bikes there. If you purchased your bike at this bike shop, you get X dollar discount or X percent discount. Mm-hmm. You know, And so the chain is MSRP at um, – you know, forty bucks, and if you bought your bike here, it only costs you thirty-six. And ask, service is the same way. Jim, can I ask you? In, I mean, this this was a big topic on the show about a year ago, and then I don't know if it's carried on being a, a big topic locally. Do you see canyons around? Do, are people buying canyons in the U.S.? I have not seen any yet, um, but I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't been riding that much lately. Um, I got out last Saturday. Uh, or Sunday, because it was in the 70s. Um, but no, I have not seen them yet. See, I just got uh, the feeling it was a big issue because you couldn't get them in America, and there was this pent-up demand. But then, you know, since they've been available, I haven't seen lots and lots of of bike shops in the U.S. saying our business is, is going down because you can suddenly buy canyons here. 
what what I do see are Chinese frames. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the black carbon frame with no stickers on it. And where I see those is is interesting. I you always see them on somebody who is a serious cyclist in a full kit in that's usually matching, you know, the jersey and, mm-hmm. and the bibs are the same manufacturer, not like me. Um Gee, that's chartreuse, then I'll go with purple on my bibs. Um, hey, cars don't hit me. They're afraid. Um, you know, and, and where I see the most is in our richer mountain communities in the ski areas, which I think is hilarious. Um, but, so I, I do see more and more of those every year. And I, I mean, I think last summer I saw three. Um, and they're, they're bought off the internet. Then they're, they're not bought from a bike shop. Somebody's buying them no. from Alibaba or something. Right, right. As far as canyons, I haven't seen those yet. But I don't. I'm not sure I'd recognize one either. Well, see, and I'll give you a I bit of background. It. I mean, I'm not naming that. Even Bike Biz doesn't know who this bike shop is. Um, but this particular bike shop, one of the issues that he did raise uh, were the internet brands, and and the only one really can think of that's big enough is is canyon so i think he, in the uk he's just seeing canyons coming into his shop and he's uh. kind of annoyed by that because he knows he hasn't no no other fellow bike shop has sold that apart from the the bike shop that was founded in in cologne germany by you know uh, it was a it sprang from a german bike shop but they are no longer a, a german bike shop it's an internet only brand so he's annoyed by internet only brands <laughs> I have another concern about this whole thing, hmm. and and that is the idea that this this kind of reaction is happening in the it, it, you know most likely in the absence of considering some other things that that independent bike stores can can and have done, and I talk about this a lot, which I make no apologies for whatsoever. But it is the idea that cycling is not an inclusive sport. Mm-hmm. It is still very much largely targeted at uh, middle-class white men, <laughs> and almost all the products that you see are still designed to to attract middle-class white men. There is there there are just huge swathes of people that the bike industry is not talking to, primarily in the form of women uh, and LGBT people, both of whom there is just an abundance of evidence that demonstrates the buying power of those particular groups. And the cycling industry continues to exist in the Mesozoic area when it comes to trying to attract them. And everyone wants to talk about this idea about how there's progress being made. Um, you, know, you can see that there's a lot more products designed for women, as an example. But progress is a tool for people who are happy with the status quo. <laughs> if, if they wanted to really make a difference in making cycling more inclusive, then, then bike companies could make those changes overnight and bike stores could start to target those two demographics in particular with very little effort required on their part. Chris, just to, sorry to stop you in mid-flow there, but do you think those demographics are actually buying online because uh, physical uh, bricks-and-mortar stores maybe aren't such good places for them? And it's easy, Women it's more certainly anonymous. are. Mm. Women, so, women absolutely are. Mm. Sure, you walk into a bike shop and there's six guys standing around there and they're in kits and they're talking the jargon that nobody understands. And if a woman walks in, they all stop. It's a sausage it's a rare fest. event. Right. It's an event. And if she's in a kit, they stop. And there's, I mean, you know, kits make women look gorgeous. So um, they stop and stare because it's so rare. 
there's um there's lots of again supporting evidence that talks about uh, the shopping habits of women. This is something that I used to teach retailers um, right before I stopped working at Trek. And one of the things that we would tell them is that uh, people, are, women especially, are starting to evaluate the experience that they're going to have in a store before they even set foot in the door. So mm-hmm. they're looking at how the store is presented on the outside. So there are three key areas where women are, are gauging the experience that they have. The first is the, is the curbside check. The second is what happens when they walk in the door. And the third is what happens when they have their first interaction with somebody on staff. So they've actually had two incredibly important points within their interaction that is forming their overall opinion of their of the of the store and their their experience in it before they even talk to a single member of staff. And and again, so this for... is what this is the sort of thing that, that because they have you know two of the three things are are not so great and, and in large part many times all three of things will not be great. So this is the thing that makes them turn to online shopping because they're already used to doing online shopping for lots of other products, even when they have a good experience. And so why would they take the risk in something that is clearly a a male dominated environment? Can I introduce a fourth one there? So you had three there. The fact that a lot of people would go onto a a website and have a look around there. So even before they get to curbside, you you have your digital curbside. You go and look online. And you can see, well, is there any women staff? Is there any, you know, do you think that happens? That people look around on websites and think, how, how friendly is this shop going to be to me as a consumer? Absolutely. Of course. I think that's, that's true. Although the thing about it is that we know that, you know, Wiggle, for example, or performance.com, they're not exactly the, the most impressive looking websites in terms of design. Mm. Um, mm. But it's, it's an intimidation free environment for somebody if somebody has a local store then yes there's probably a chance that they will look at the store's website before they they set foot in the door but if it's a local store to them chances are they've already seen it before even before they've seen whatever the store's website looks like so they're making a determination about that store based on what they see when they're out and about just running around town mm-hmm. um, and if they get in there and what they see is a bunch of you know mammals who are standing around talking about whatever the latest oval chain ring is that's inevitably going to destroy their knees then and, and nobody stops that conversation to recognize that somebody has come into the into the store in the first place then the likelihood that 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 woman is going to spend any money there is is um is extremely low and the lgbt community is just i mean for, forget about the whatever you think is is the false prophecy of progress is happening for women in the bike industry there just isn't any there is no measure of progress or change when it comes to trying to attract the lgbt community which again just has tremendous buying power i mean as a group they have more spending power than the entire gdp of of many many countries just like women and and nobody is is trying to advocate to this particular group and no one is trying to encourage them to take up cycling as a sport. And so this is the this is the fundamental flaw that I have with bike stores deciding that the way that they're going to combat this problem is by saying you'll miss us when when we're gone by by refusing to work on bikes when you know what else have they done to try and bring in uh, new people into the sport in their local area that that makes it more inclusive as a whole. Chris, do you not think cycling is actually pretty good at this? The, the amount of for instance, I mean, I'm not too sure, and Jim, you can tell us what it's like in the US, but in the UK, we've had, for, for a good 20, 30 years, we've had cooperatives. The, the cooperatives uh, in Manchester, in Edinburgh, plenty in London, which have been incredibly friendly uh, to the LGBT community because they're run by members of the LGBT community. So do you not think that actually the bike trade is actually it's pretty good at this? Mm, no. 
<laughs> Damn. Why? Because well, I mean, we Sorry, have got I those mean, shops which again, would just... I mean, This isn't to say that we shouldn't recognise the the success that the, that the cooperatives have had. Mm. That's that's not my point. It's not that there aren't examples mm-hmm. of things that have done that have gone really well. Of course, there are examples that, of things that have gone really well. But when is the last time you saw anybody in the bike industry? Um, putting up an, an advertisement during LGBT History Month or showing open support for any pride parades. Did track when you, you don't. for track? Did you, no. did you see that? Never. Okay. Never. Uh, but, I don't, I, but I think that crosses every single border. They don't do single to Mayo. They don't do Black History Month. They, exactly. Mm, bike mm. shops don't support – I shouldn't say support. Bike shops don't push anything along those lines – other than pure cycling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right to point that out, Jim. And, and I've been really remiss in not uh, highlighting the intersectionality element of this. And I will f- probably chastise myself a great deal for that because I take my advocacy of minority groups pretty damn seriously. But you're absolutely right. The black community, again, huge spending power. You know, Aisha McGowan is, is trying to become the first African-American professional cyclist in the women's peloton. It is 2018. And we have yet to see a black woman become a professional cyclist because she isn't seeing herself reflected mm-hmm. in anything that the industry is churning out in terms of a marketing campaign. So she's, be, she's trying to become the thing that ideally other black women will see mm-hmm. because she's had to do it herself because no one else is doing it. So we, we and, the- and you see somebody who's African-American or some other nationality other than you know, the pot of, of, or, you know, the melting pot here in the United States of old fat white guy on a bicycle. And it, it makes you register it. it it's a, you know, click in the brain. Oh, African-American riding a bike. That's awesome. Um, or, or whatever that demographic is, but out here in Colorado where the, the demographics, demographics are skewed already. Our African-American population is very low and always has been since I've lived here. You, any sport, skiing, um, mm. backpacking, whatever it may be, it, it's a registration. Um, and so how do you so – and, and, and this is purely you, a question, but how do you that? then say to your advertising department, we want to bring in mm. um, people of diversity into our program, and yet 92% of our market uh, down to 67% of our market in Colorado is old fat white guys. Mm. That's what's keeping the wind, the doors open. So it's demographics, and it's just numbers, and that's why you don't have any promotions during Black History Month because yeah. they just looked at the the figures. I've never seen an African American in a bike shop. Now that I think about it, mm-hmm. but why would they sucks. go? Well, yeah, why would they go? Why why would they go into exactly one? exactly? So and I and I'm speaking just because from pure ignorance, I don't know how to do change that. Mm. And so, huh? Maybe it's, it's like anything else. It's, it's, yeah, it's a it's a matter of outreach. Uh, you know, it's it, it, again. And and um, Jules Walker is another person who I turn to a lot for for subjects about the inclusivity of cycling because again, she as a black woman is also somebody who, despite the fact that she never saw any examples of herself represented in in anything in the cycling community. She decided to go for it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, these people are role models. And, and, and the thing about that is, is that they're not, they're not 
deciding that they're going to go be role models. They're deciding to pursue something despite the fact that the, that the thing that they're pursuing is not openly welcoming them. So it's, it's a pretty simple thing. I mean, it's, you don't need to tell anybody that if you walk into Foot Locker that there's going to be shoes that you can go in and buy mm. to play basketball because there are plenty of examples of people of every skin tone who play basketball. Yep. So it, you can't make the equivalency between other sports like basketball to cycling because it just doesn't work that way. But the thing is, if you have... Um, there's a there's a BMX club in East London, and I, I'm really sorry that I can't remember exactly who it is, but these are the guys that have turned out um, some of the best BMX riders that in in British cycling history. And they and and the majority of them happen to be black because this one club has just decided, you know, this is going to be a thing that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still not seeing themselves represented in in anything that the industry is turning out. So the the ind- the problem is that the industry continues to see itself as a thing that white people do and that's who their market is going to be. And they're going to continue to market to, to that, that demographic because as Jim says, that's who's doing the sport now, but that is not where the growth of the sport is. You, you, you can, you can't drain blood from that stone anymore. If you want to grow the sport of cycling, if independent bike stores want to fight the, this, this tendency for people to shop online, they need to start thinking outside of the box because everything that the cycling industry is doing right now screams homogeny. You know, Chris, thank you very much for, <laughs> for, for your contribution today because we have broadened this out into something uh, amazingly wide. In that we'll talk about the emergence of guns. We've now brought in uh, race, equality, uh, gender, uh, uh, class, even if we can we can talk about that, uh, and it is incredibly uh, touchy subjects. All of those things uh, will, will will obviously make other people kick off in different ways. Um, it, we do need another show. We need another twenty shows to talk about subjects of that weightiness, and I don't think we've got enough time today to to. To really do them justice, obviously, these these need to be discussed and discussed and discussed. So, I'm going to call it a day learn. now, even we, though it, I, I don't have enough information to discuss. I just need to learn more. I, that, that's absolutely. I can, I can help you out there, Jim. I, I'll take it. I really will. So, I would like to absolutely uh, keep on discussing these these topics in future shows. But for now, I think we're going to have to call it a day. So, uh, can we get your social media gubbins? Can you tell us where we can find you? So, Chris, where can we find you on social media? Well, you can usually find me shouting at the wind at the sea garrison. <laughs> okay. And, Jim, tell us all your handles. Can <laughs> you got I more should. than that? Oh, yeah, I got. I have one for every personality. <laughs> Think about it. Um, on Twitter, I'm Recreation Law, one word. On Facebook, I'm Recreation Law, one word, I think. Um, on Gmail, I'm Recreation.law. And on the web, I'm Recreation-law.com. So Recreation Law should find me most places. Um, I, quit, I quit shouting at the wind. I actually went on Facebook for 20 minutes for the first time in... <laughs> A year yesterday, 
and went, wow, that's sort of interesting. That's, wow, I didn't know, you know. And I went, what am I doing here? Mm. So, mm. Okay, and I am Carlton Reed on Twitter, uh, R-E-I-D, and uh, Facebook, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with Jim there. Um, probably not on there a great deal. Uh, but you can definitely find me on uh, bikebiz.com with uh, stories that probably don't go viral most of the time. But then again, the odd one certainly does. Uh, so this has been episode 182 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Thank you ever so much uh, for listening today. Thank you ever so much uh, for subscribing to the show on iTunes and all those other places where you can get uh, those products. And of course, uh, that's an Apple product and we're, bo- we're boycotting Apple now, aren't we? Um, and uh, yeah. this show will be back in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to, before I say that, I'm going to say where we can get show notes because there will be a ton of uh, links that we're talking about today. So that'll be on the show notes, which is uh, at thespokesman.com, which is the-spokesman.com. Uh, and I'll also put uh, Chris's and uh, Jim's social media profiles. And it's going to take up about five pages for, for Jim's uh, social media <laughs> profiles to, to be listed. However, um, uh, one so, per personality. <laughs> Exactly. 31 total. Scroll, scroll, keep on scrolling, keep on scrolling. It's, there's, there's more. Um, so this has uh, been a fantastic show. Thank you to Chris and to Jim. And uh, when the show comes back, uh, hopefully you'll be on and we can carry on discussing all of those fantastic issues that we have discussed today. However, in the meantime, get out there and ride. <laughs>